Today, we discuss the X Factor. No, not the talent show. Not with Simon Cowell, not with any celebrity judges. This is X Factor, the first actual X-Men spinoff book with a big, giant, fat X in the title. It came in 1985. It came with much fanfare. It was the reunion, the reunification of the original five X-Men. But how are you going to do that when Jean Grey was dead? She was as dead as a doornail, okay? Long dormant, they had to find some way to bring her back. Today, we talked to the creators who conceived to bring them all back in the first place of creating the title X Factor and how the hell did they re- resurrect Jean Grey anyway? Plus, the DC rumor mill is buzzing. I give you my crazy predictions of what I believe is coming at DC Publishing, at DC Entertainment, and you will not even begin to believe what I have to say on today's all new observations. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Rob Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld. This show exists as a massive mashup of all things pop culture and comic books, which is basically to say the same thing, because pop culture is comic books and comic books is pop culture now, for sure, and and, and forevermore. I started this show giving you a, a recollection of my youth, seven years old, 1974, 1975, picking up comics off squeaky spinner racks, and I have kind of walked you through my lifetime of comics, which coincides with this incredible journey. Star Wars happened when I was nine. You know, Raiders of the Lost Ark happened when I was 12. You know, Empire Strikes Back happened when I was 11. All of these different seminal, you know, projects in comic books, in, 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 in movies happened during my, during my youth. I mean, it's just been this transcendent time period, whether it was, whether it was the Incredible Hulk show with Lou Ferrigno and Bill Bixby that was a top rated show, which happened, you know, when I was 10, 11, you know, 12, or as I said, the, 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 the Star Wars movies happening from when I was nine to when I was 16 years old. I watched pop culture change. I watched uh, the, the, the special effects revolution that, that changed the way the visuals that we saw on screen, the, the way they improved. One year earlier, 1976, is Logan's Run. Put them side by side. You'll see just this two studio special effects movies that, that could not be more different, that could not look more you know, aged from one another. And it's literally 12 months from release date, 76 to 77 separates Logan's Run and Star Wars. And so, again, whether it was TV, whether it was animation, I mean, I had just, I had probably been in comics for five years when the X-Men hit the screens, Fox, Saturday mornings, making it the number one show, which really, as I've learned from so many of you, is, is so many of your entry points into comic books. And you were starting to buy the comics that myself, Jim Lee, Wills Portacio were doing, the X-Men books, just as we were exiting them to create Image Comics. I was part of a revolution. I was part of a, 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 a comic book wave that transformed the entire business. And, and we've talked about it in previous podcasts. 
the, the, the amount people were paid, the computer color that is made today, that, 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 that is used today to make the comic books that you consume was at its inception. We pushed it forward. We financed the technicians, the, 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 the artists, the illustrators, the painters who would utilize computers for the very first time and, and, and pushed it in a huge way. Our entire lines were colored by computer five years before Marvel or DC would even think about catching up. They thought this will go away. So like I said, in my lifetime, all of these amazing Jurassic Park was in my 20s. You know, I'm, I'm like, I have watched the evolution of ILM. And obviously, if you're watching Light and Magic on Disney+, Plus, you're getting it at, at exactly how it occurred. And, and to kids like me who, again, were nine years old, Memorial Day, 1977, I mean, I have watched the world transform and become this comic book, uh, you know, Goliath, you know, behemoth. I mean... When I talk about the Hulk and Bill Bixby, and I've referenced often the CBS attempts at the Doctor Strange movie that was just released on DVD. I mean, you can buy that now. You don't have to watch that crusty YouTube version. Uh, the little boy from Sound of Music grew up, became Peter Parker on the CBS Spider-Man show. Uh, uh, an athlete named Reb Brown became Captain America. Marvel took their big swings in the 70s with live action on television, with animation, Fantastic Four, No Human Torch. It was a robot named Herbie because they didn't want people, you know, kids turning, you know, turning themselves on fire, lighting themselves on fire. And I've, I've actually talked at, at great lengths about how I did light myself on fire. And if you want exactly how that went down and how I did that, you have to go back and find that episode because I have discussed it at length. I could do it again right now, but that, that would be ill-advised. So thank you to Gene Simmons for, from KISS for, for igniting my 19, you know, 77, 1978 flaming on dreams. My entire arm was on fire. Okay. And, uh, I don't advise that for any kids listening at home, but Rob's observations is where we talk about all of it. I get to look at it from a certain point of view from having been there, you know, in the, in the first age, the first big swings to now when the big swings are in game and, uh, just saw that again this weekend and could not believe how, the depth. And I don't, quite believe I appreciated as much as I was appreciating at the time what it took to bring all those characters, the 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 just quality of the CGI, how refined, how beautiful that movie is, the 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 action choreography, that finale is something else. It is absolutely something else. There is a reason that movie obviously blew up the way it did, because it delivered across the board on all fronts. And today, as I come to you, we're going to begin this episode with a little bit of reflection on everything that's gone on in the last couple of weeks. I could not not discuss all of the inconsistencies that, that are coming out from the Warner Brothers slash DC Entertainment, you know, wing of entertain of, of the you know movie business. Discovery Warner Brothers is the new you know component after AT and T unloaded Warner Brothers and the Discovery guys. Uh, you know, got got their got their uh, got their hands on it, and what's happened is uh, is all chaos has, has has broken loose last week. I mean, it was literally I can't think of a a, a a week that created so much damage to to a brand. And this Zaslav or Zaslav, he is obviously very aggressive. He he has a uh, 
He has a very uh, deliberate strategy. He is the head of WB Discovery. He's the new big boss. Um, he addressed the investors. He, he tried to say all the right things, but, but we're beyond the words now because nothing has seemed to match up for so very long. At, 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 uh, at San Diego Comic-Con, they got Jim Lee outside of a panel. They caught him, I believe. I've watched the clip a little flat-footed. I think a little above his pay grade. I confronted some producers, <laughs> and I did. I was pretty aggressive. That's why I'm using the word confronted. Uh, at an Entertainment Weekly party, uh, they mentioned Jim Lee and movies, and I said, come on, he's not involved in the movies. He doesn't produce them, direct them, write them. Um, you know, he, he doesn't greenlight films. And the guy goes, no, no, you're right, you're right. It was like they've just gotten used to saying his name, and God bless you, Jim. You're a hell of a talent, but you, you, you literally have nothing to do with the films. And so when they asked him, you know, about the films, Jim said, well, we're putting the Snyder stuff behind us. Cut to five days later, Jason Momoa shows himself and Ben Affleck in a series of pictures as Ben Affleck is very clearly dressed up as Bruce Wayne and it is confirmed he is back for Aquaman 2. Zack Snyder, whether you like him or not, he cast Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman. He cast Jason Momoa as Aquaman. He put Ben Affleck in the Batman role for the first time. When you cast these characters and they continue to elevate as Gal did in Wonder Woman and as, as Jason did in, in Aquaman, he is the architect. You, could, you cannot dismiss on any level that Zack is the architect. Also the architect. That's a nice, nice, nice word. The architect of that particular vision. And, and that vision isn't going away. So when you stand in front of a mic and say it's going away and then it pops up and Momoa is a huge Snyder zealot. Why wouldn't he be? Zack cast him as Aquaman. Zack cast him as Aquaman knowing that he would then go on and make solo Aquaman films. But Zack was the guy who was rounding out his Justice League cast and made the reach across the aisle to extend the deal, extend the casting to Aquaman. There are a lot of people on Twitter, and you should be warned, that know absolutely nothing. And they all kind of talk the same and they quote articles as if they've been briefed. These Twitter, it's like, I've been briefed in the secret room for all the Twitter followers. And it's like, no, you haven't. You're just reading the same stuff we are. Why are, what, what are we doing? What are we, why are we sharing this in this manner? I can just say, I love something. And then everyone goes, no, 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 you shouldn't love it. it, it, it it's, it's bad because of this and this and this. That's social media for you, right? The Zack Snyder of it all. I don't care if you like his stuff or not. It doesn't offend me. You're not going to offend me if you don't like Zack Snyder's Justice League. You're not going to offend me if you don't like Man of Steel. If I like it, I like it. That's it. I don't need you to quantify it. And I wish so many more people, but we are in a group think. We are deep, deep, deep in, in a group think shared uh, mentality because no one wants to offend. Everyone wants to be accepted. So they've tribed out. Everyone's tribed out. It's so much beyond politics. It's beyond what we have come to know in the last eight years as, as social media and politics came side by side and the signal boost has, has almost crippled all of us. And it's became the, become the same thing in pop culture. And the anti, you know, Snyderverse sentiment is just, is, is like just absolutely, I mean, it's, 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 I, I just, it, it's, it's almost unfathomable, unfathomable to me how out of control that's gotten the, 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 the anti Zack Snyder pro Zack Snyder fandom. I just like this stuff. I don't need to be a zealot on either side, but Momoa, Godot, Gadot, I'll just call her gal, Ben Affleck, Henry Cavill, the director is essential in casting the films. 
So saying the Snyderverse isn't happening, and if you're still going to do movies with Gal and Jason and Ben, then it, it isn't dead. But then on top of all this, this was a very clumsy, I think the word clumsy is, 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 what, it, is what could best be described as what happened to the Batgirl movie. And shutting it down in the manner that it was announced, it was probably leaked. You know, somebody probably wanted to get it out there. They probably wanted to keep it quiet, but it was just a bad look overall, period. It just made it look like DC and their their entity at this time does not know what's going on. The, the, the right hand is not shaking the left hands. You know, they're, they're not shaking. They're, they're not, they're not, you know, greeting each other. They're, they're not just the left side of the brain, the right side of the brain. They're not communicating. And it's, it's, it's really, it's a hard, it's hard to watch as somebody who loves DC, loves the DC catalog. And I can love it and tell you that I'm not in love with what they're doing currently with it. And I've, and I've said this to you guys again and again and again. And when I go to the comic store and the publishing division is only really churning out Batman, Batman, Batman. And you can say this is negative. It's not. It's reality. I'm telling you the reality that great, amazing concepts like Commandy, the New Gods, Mr. Miracle, Forever People, OMAC, the Demon, the Legion of Superheroes, Firestorm, Blue Devil, all of this stuff. All of this stuff has been absolutely neglected. It has been neglected. The stuff that made DC so competitive and, and, and helped launch them to the top spot has all been neglected because they don't have the time to grow. And that is, and when I say they don't have the time to grow, they have to justify their existence to their corporate bosses all the time. Why are we in the paper printing business? Why are we in the comic book business? Because comic books don't yield anywhere near the same, you know, money, profits, that these video games, television, uh, movies do. And, and and so the publishing division is always looking to justify its existence, justify maybe some of the salaries that are paid to the top dogs. I'm not going to pile on here. I'm telling you the reality. Last week's headlines were a bad look. There's, there's, there's the flash issue with Ezra Miller continuing, continuing to get in more and more and more and more uh, problems uh, as... As, as news leaks of different, you know, warrants out for his arrest and 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 uh, citations, and and I'm not sure that the Flash film is in the clear yet, and 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 certainly, despite their best, you know, positioning, neither are they. They don't know. They could pull the plug at any minute. They said the right things. We've brought in Alan Horn, who was not Kevin Feige. Kevin Feige is Kevin Feige. Kevin, if you don't have Kevin Feige, you can't claim a Kevin Feige strategy. And last week, they tried to kind of connect Alan Horn to Kevin Feige. And while Alan Horn is an accomplished, one of the most accomplished, uh, you know, movie moguls, movie bosses, he's not Kevin Feige. Feige was doing his Marvel planning before Disney bought them. Remember, Iron Man 1 and 2 and... Those movies are from Paramount. They're distributed by Paramount. So was Thor. So was so was Captain America, the first Avenger. Disney got their first bite at the distribution apple when they paid Paramount $100 million, maybe $200, but it was at least $100 million. It was announced in the trades for the rights to take the distribution of the Avengers movie so that they could move it onto their ledger and that they could be the distributor. Look, had Paramount distributed the movies, Disney's still getting all the money because they own Marvel at the time, but they wanted to be the distributor as well. The first four movies under Kevin Feige, solely under Kevin Feige, with the Marvel brand, Iron Man, Iron Man 2, Thor, and Cap are Paramount distributions. Kevin was doing his thing prior to Alan Horn, prior to Disney. 
So to say, hey, I've, I've got the, 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 the Disney, the head of Disney Films who coordinated with Kevin once Kevin came over with his master plan, that's not having Kevin Feige. And, you know, God bless you. I wish them success. I would love nothing more than to watch great, great, great DC films. Who doesn't want that? I want that. I want to stand in line. I want to reserve my tickets. I want to be in my recliner. I want to drink my Slurpee. I want to watch the further, you know, revolution of the DC films. But it's it's not coming right now. And you can say, but Rob, there's the, that, the film slate that's ahead. Well, let's put it out and let's see where it goes. As, as more is revealed, we can discuss more. I'm going to end this section with two distinct, distinct predictions. Uh, Jim Lee will... I believe he will leave DC Comics within the next six months. I believe he will either uh, be removed or leave on his own or given the option, look, we want you to leave. and Because they just want a complete changing of the guard. Everybody is new. Mike DeLuca, who was running MGM, is now going to run Warner Brothers Films. All my producer friends and some of them who I'm doing film business with right now have said they don't want anything new. They want to re... They only want what's in the WB catalog. They want... They want what's existing in Warner Brothers. One of the reasons I can be so ridiculously candid is they want nothing from me and I want nothing from them. Warner Brothers is never going to buy a Rob Liefeld comic book project because they can't even get their comic book projects, you know, in in, in the right shape. They aren't doing a Legion of Superheroes movie. They aren't doing an OMAC TV series. They aren't exploiting the new gods in the way that they should. They shut down the previous uh, version. And so the bottom line is they're installing new people. I suspect that they will want to go a new division, new direction in the publishing. Uh, Jim, my, my guess, this is a guess. I'm going to say this again. This is my guess. This is my prediction. I don't know this. It's my feeling. It is my gut instinct. He can say, well, they were going in a direction I didn't like, which means downsizing. And I want it out. What's part two of this? Jim will return to Marvel in some capacity, most likely drawing an X-Men for the first time in 25 years. Let's call it 25. If it's longer, it's longer. If it's less, I feel like it'll be 25 years. And they can um, trumpet that, and that is my prediction. So it actually puts Jim in a much better spot. So this is in no way, shape, or form diminishing him in any way. I believe Jim will be at Marvel drawing the X-Men within six, six months to a year. Easy. I believe he is out of DC within six months because I'm not sure what's going on with publishing there. They're going to scale it way back, uh, transform it into some something else. But I do not believe the publishing that we know right now with DC is going to exist in the same way, shape, or form. And my prediction is that Jim will be drawing the X-Men or doing a giant Marvel project within 12 months. And, and that is, I feel so good about that, I, I, I'd wager it. That's how positive I am about that. So if this does, in fact, end up happening, um, look, I, I, I read the tea leaves. I, I brought it to you first. There's obviously no guarantee. It's a prediction. But come on, who, who wouldn't want more X-Men by Jim Lee? It, it's been much longer than you think, over two decades. Marvel would find a way to do that deal. Look, bottom line, if it doesn't happen, it wasn't for everyone. La- la- everyone's lack of trying. The underlying part of this is I just don't see Jim in the new infrastructure at DC Comics under Warner's, because I don't think Warner's... This guy is trying to shed as much debt, as much costs as possible. And 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 I'm telling you, the people that I have heard from say they have staved off until now. Staved off, but it, it, it feels like the dam is about to break. And if it does, what I just told you will come to fruition. 
but this was not a bright, shiny week, and they have problems ahead. And that's not me being negative. I literally just, in terms of the news that's going on, reflected to you the absolute facts of what is being reported as what is going on with uh, everything in regards to Warner Brothers and the DC Entertainment films. So, you know, I guess in October it's Black Adam. And as that gets closer, we'll circle back and we'll, 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 we'll look inside the crystal ball. The publishing division, you know, as I've said, they, they, they have not given themselves the opportunity to build up more brands as, uh, as we've all discussed. Marvel just has more families that they can hit you with again and again and again. And, and by, by virtue of having 22, 23 Batman books a month, it's just it's it's ultimately watered down the project. It's watered down uh, the material. I'm going to give you a flip of this. Robert Kirkman, as you know, the author of The Walking Dead, wrote each and every issue. Stopped publishing it three years ago. Abruptly announced it would be the last issue. Kept it, you know, very much under his uh, under his hat. Kept it a top secret. Shocked the world. Ended Walking Dead. Oh, more. I just. Uh, telling you right now that was a shock that was a shock of all shocks through it all over the decade of walking dead where it was being exploited and the number one television show the wonder the number one show on television the number one kind of genre show walking dead was blowing up it was everywhere the 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 apparel the hats the clothes the pops the toys i mean the backpacks there was just walking dead was everyone Robert resisted spinning off The Walking Dead. Do you not think that the people of Image Comics pitched him from the executive suite, from the home office? Hey, it'd be great if we could do another Walking Dead Europe, Walking Dead, you know, global, international Walking Dead. What's going on outside of the purview of what's going on with Rick and Michonne and, and, and Negan and that cast? Robert never bit. He felt as if he would be... Uh, you know, watering down The Walking Dead if he ever spun it off even once. He did a trade-off. I think there was a story in The Walking Dead world set in Europe that I think Charlie Adlard might have been involved with, but it was a, a trade, a swap. It was a one-time thing, but there was never a new Walking Dead series. It was just dedicated Walking Dead was the main series, and that was it. And it was written by Robert, and it was given to you. And and he, he refused all manner of temptations of licensing opportunities to expand it, like Young Walking Dead, The Adventures of the Kids in the Walking Dead world, cartoon books, whatever. He turned them all down. He stayed the course. You guys know if you you followed Youngblood, I did Youngblood, I did Team Youngblood, I did Youngblood Strike File, okay? I, by design, had two Youngblood teams, so I felt that the one book wasn't big enough for both of them, so I justified two Youngblood books, but absolutely it watered down the project. It, brought, it watered down... The concept, the project, the product. Team Youngblood, again, you know, even though I'm doing solo stories of the different characters, they could have been Youngblood comics, extended the run. We'd have gone way past 100 had I combined Team Youngblood, Youngblood Strike File, and Youngblood. But we didn't, I didn't, but I can sit there and tell you that I've experienced the expansion of something and the watering down of something, and the stuff that I'm telling you that was watered down is a team book with, you know, over 20 characters. And we're talking about 
you know, a Batman concept. Yes, there's Robins and there's Catwomans and there's Batgirls, but this, the family by and large is six or seven. And I'm still telling you, 23 books is too much. DC has a great catalog, you guys. You should root for it. You should root for someone somewhere to champion it in the, in the proper way, in the proper way, the way that it deserves. And if that meant uh, that maybe the top talent at the, at, at, at the company draws the new gods or draws Legion and, and gr- gives a greater sense of kind of, you know, priority to those projects rather than only sticking to the books that were tied into the movies or only sticking to the books that were the guaranteed sellers, New Mutants didn't turn around overnight. Daredevil didn't turn around overnight. You know, even the X-Men didn't turn around overnight. It takes time. It takes patience. And DC has to has to get to a place where they go, we're going to give this a year, not three months, not four months, not five, not six, not eight, not 10, 12 months, okay? Because they can do it. They have the means. But let's, I'm rooting for them. The prediction that I gave you is not an indictment. I, I think I think it'll probably become untenable for Jim to stay there. He's a big figurehead. He's a big guy. He's a big name. And I do believe that in one year he is drawing something for Marvel. That is my prediction. I have no inside source. There is not someone didn't tell someone didn't some didn't tell someone to tell me. I'm telling you, that's my gut. I've gone by my gut my whole career. If I'm wrong, I'll call back. I'll say that I am one hundred percent wrong. Speaking of the exploitation of titles, this is a perfect segue. We are talking about X-Factor today. We have never given X-Factor its due. We have never given the X-Factor its due. Not the TV show with, with, with Simon from uh, American Idol. Not, the, not another judgment show. Not another talent show. X-Factor, the comic book. The first spinoff of the X-Men with an X in it. The New Mutants came first. The kids, the school. It didn't have an X in it. I was told repeatedly by marketing when I was doing it that we need to find a way to get your idea, Rob, to get an X in this title. Because, I mean, even if it was X mutants, you know, some X, you know, hit the spot. And and I'm going to tell you today, I'm going to share with you, get on your, you know, history glasses, your history pencil, your history pad, put it all down in front of you, get ready to take some notes. We're going to jump into some history today of one of the biggest and most, it turned out to be the most controversial at the time, but it was the beginning of the flex of the expansion of the brand in regards to X-Men taking taking on ex- expanding the scope beyond the team that was that, that exists beyond the, the 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 Wolverine the Storm the 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 Colossus team because that was the team that was paying all the bills and in a season 1 episode of Rob Observations I go into great detail you should check it out and it's it's got X Men in the title. There's so many in the because the evolution of the marketplace was contingent on the X Men succeeding. It went so many places that so many people didn't go, and it was going there in 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 always with the purpose of expanding, selling more books, and expanding the brand because uh, Marvel wanted to sell you more comics, and they had a winning hand. And it's it's when they realized that they would be better off going bi-monthly, giving you two X-Men books than giving you more X-Men spinoffs. That they really solidified the X-Men's popularity. And again, in in 87 and 88 and 86, the storylines coalesce. It combines, the storylines unite the different books. The storylines start pulling everything together. But the first big 
big flex, the first big flex in, in regards to like doing in a, another book of X-Men that wasn't Wolverine and Colossus and Storm was X-Factor and it did not come without its, as we would say, controversy. It's controversy. It's controversy. It did not come without its controversy. And, uh, you know, it's really fun how, how, how it, how it all, how it all comes together because, uh, because there was a lot of like kind of seat of your pants moments in bringing this to you. This was not part of a larger plan. And I'm going to share with you from the talent that was there, what happened in regards to, to the, 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 the formation exploitation and, and the absolute, you know, fulfillment of getting another X-Men book. And we're going to do it with some of the talent, like I said, who was there along the way, who helped bring you these books, who, uh, you know, were, 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 were part of the kind of eureka, the eureka moments that, that brought us the very first spinoff. And in this case, we have X Factor. I'm going to give you straight from the mouth of the man, the man himself, he uh, he of of the the penciling status, the man who went on to to draw the launch book of X Factor. That I got to tell you, as a fan, I was super excited about this. What the promise that X Factor held when it was announced? It was the five original X Men. You got Cyclops, you got Jean Grey, you got Beast, Angel, Iceman. The talent on the launch book: Bob Layton, Jackson Geis. These are big names. These were guys who were in the A-list department of Marvel Comics. They had given us uh, X-Men Micronauts, which I've covered in... The, the, there, there's a there's an episode I did about, you know, Forbidden Fruit, Forbidden Fruit Part 2, books that can't be reprinted. Well, because my, Marvel doesn't have the rights to the Micronauts and haven't for 30-plus years, their team up with the Micronauts, which Jackson Geist was drawing because he was the big fan favorite follow-up to Michael Golden, who we had all missed so much, and, and Jackson had some of that Michael Golden appeal in his work, which is why he became an instant fan favorite with his very first work. He had done the Micronauts, and he got graduated to the X-Men Micronauts miniseries, which was co-written by both Chris Claremont and the Micronauts writer Bill Mantlo, who would go on to create Rocket Raccoon, among others. Bill and Chris were like Marvel's two most accomplished, best-selling authors, and so they both authored X-Men Micronauts. Again, that's in the uh, the Forbidden Fruits uh, episode, uh, which, which cover the books that can't be reprinted. You can't have them as trades or hardcovers. And X Factor was drawn by Jackson Geis. He 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 graduated up the chain to this new X X Men spinoff, and it featured the five original X Men who had not been united in almost you know well over a decade by that time. Ten years is a long time. We're, we're pushing like more like. 15 some years that they had been the focus, that they had been the absolute focus. And so Jackson Geis spoke to com the, the Comics Interview magazine. I have Comics Interview number 28. This was published in 1985 as X Factor was about to roar into all of our hands. And again, the house ads, the the sketches, the interviews, it uh it, it promised some really cool developments. It promised some really great you know, opportunities for, you know, us, us to see 
this super talented group of creators bring us a brand new vision of the original X-Men, the, the Stan and Jack X-Men. And no one's going to tell it to you better than uh, our good friend, Jackson Geis, who was the guy tapped to draw the launch issue. And again, we've talked about it. I mean, you know, I've been watching this Light and Magic. And I, I highly recommend it for you on Disney+. Plus. And again, George Lucas is going to pound through your head visuals, visuals, visuals. The visual language of, of Star Wars is why we love it. Not the concept. The concept is very simple. It's the visual language. The people who aren't artists always try and take away from the accomplishments of artists because they're not the, the illustrators. They're not the visualists. And so what I've seen over time, and you're going to see it here. You're going to see it in some of what I bring you today. Writers uh, sometimes want to diminish the accomplishments of the writers and the contributions of the writers. The, the writers want to sometimes, not all, not all, but some, some, want to contribute the and diminish the contributions of the artist because they understand how powerful the contributions of the artist are. And, 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 and if they sit there and toot the artist, uh, toot the horn of the artist, then they're absolutely kind of semi putting themselves in the back seat of the car because they want to be in that front seat as well. So Jackson Geis was tapped as the visual, the visual representative to bring us the beauty of X Factor. He is asked in this interview conducted by one, I believe this is Dwight Zimmerman. He, uh, Dwight John Zimmerman interviews Jackson Geis as in 1985, as he is about to uh, take on the mantle of X Factor. He had done Micronauts, done X-Men Micronauts. He had done Swords of the Swashbucklers, a creator-owned book that he had been doing. Swords of the Swashbucklers was a graphic novel that got spun off into an epic miniseries, so, so Jackson actually owned it. Uh, he admits to running out of steam in this interview on that project, and that's why he was excited to be in on X Factor. But here, the question is, I, I love it. The first question is so simple. It's like, how did X Factor come about? Boom, way to start the interview. Interview, Just very straight to the point. Let's get to it. How did X Factor come about? So here in Jackson Geis's words, I'm going to tell you, because there's a lot of interesting stuff in here. I, 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 I'm so excited to share this with you guys. And again, X Factor was a big deal, a super big deal. Marvel trumpeted it, heralded it. Uh, the, 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 the citizens of comic book world in 1985 were thrilled that this book was going to launch. How did X-Factor come about? Jackson Guy says, well, X-Factor really came about in a kind of strange fashion. Jackson at the time, he, he, he had a Southern accent. He came out to one of the conventions here in Southern California, the Disneyland Hotel. I didn't have enough money to get a sketch from him. I wanted to very much, but I watched the sketches that he gave for other people, but he had a Southern drawl. So I'm not going to give this to you in a Southern drawl, but those of you who know, especially back then, he would have given this in his Southern drawl. He says, well, X Factor really came about in, in a kind of strange fashion. It was an idea that Bob, Light, Bob Layton and I pitched to Jim Shooter about putting together a title, but neither one of us was really volunteering to work on it. It was just an idea that sparked in our heads. We were staying at Jim's apartment in New York one weekend that Jim was away. We were discussing various titles and everything. We were discussing the Defenders. We were discussing the X-Men. We looked at them and we were talking in detail about how great those old X-Men characters were and the entire original X-Men team. Not to belittle anyone who was working on the Defenders at the time, but we really felt that the X-Men who were on the Defenders should be in their own title. And we had an extreme fondness of the original X-Men. Now let me time out there real quick. 
The Defenders title that was launched in the 70s featured Doctor Strange, the Hulk, Submariner, and and uh, and Silver Surfer primarily as the original four. Then they introduced Valkyrie, who became kind of the key fifth along along the way. Nighthawk joined, and then there was a rotating uh, list that list of characters that that that, that comprised the Defenders, and they they def- they defined themselves as a as a non team, a non team because. They didn't really have a dedicated clubhouse like the Avengers or the Fantastic Four in the Baxter building. And they would assemble whoever was available at any given time to do what they wanted. My favorite issue of The Defenders, I've said it here on this episode, uh, on the on this podcast, my favorite issue of The Defenders is Defenders 50 and the lineup is Moon Knight, uh, Hulk, Nighthawk, Hellcat, Valkyrie. So no, doc- no Doctor Strange, no Prince Namor, no Submariner to be found in that lineup. But that is one of my favorite. It is my absolute favorite issue, the Defenders. But as the 80s turned around, they decided to take Angel and Iceman and put and and in some instances Beast and put them on the Defenders. Now, a decade earlier, Marvel launched a book called The Champions. The Champions took two offshoot Avengers, Hercules and Black Widow, put them with Ghost Rider, who was very popular at the time. Ghost Rider had his own series, he was very popular. So Hercules, you know, the, 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 the Olympian god of strength, son of Zeus, teamed up with Natasha Romanoff, Black Widow. They had been in and out of the Avengers family, and uh, they formed a bond, and they were joined. And Warren Worthington, who was a multi-millionaire in the comics at the time, he kind of bankrolled the team. Bobby Drake, Iceman, Warren Worthington Joan joined, and the first cover is spectacular. It's Gil Kane. It's Hercules charging towards us, pointing, you know, to the left as Iceman and Angel soar overhead. Black Widow is swinging into frame and, you know, over to the left, Ghost Rider is rearing his fiery bike from hell. The champions. I love them. We're not doing an episode on them today, but it's not the first time that they tried to utilize the original X-Men in the face of now the giant size X-Men not featuring them because this corresponds with the giant size X-Men coming out and Angel and Iceman no longer having a spot on it because they had been edged out by the new international roster of Colossus, Banshee, Storm, Nightcrawler, Wolverine, Warpath, briefly. And so Angel and Iceman then jumped to champions. Marvel wanted to keep circulating them. Long story long story short about the champions, it really got good right as it got the axe. It, John Byrne, prior to doing the X-Men, cut his teeth uh, that was the team book that he was doing issue after issue towards the end, but it was a little too little, a little too late, and it was gone. But then by the 80s, they do this all over again, and they put Beast and Iceman and Angel alongside Valkyrie, Moondragon, Hellcat, Gargoyle um, on the Defenders team. And I bought a reissue, always hoping for some magic to occur. But that creative team just did not have the spark. And that is what Jackson Geis is referring to here. So I needed to pivot and tell you because he's not being specific in his answer and he doesn't get any more specific after this. So I need to tell you that, again, the the three of the original X-Men are being featured at the, on the Defenders. And let me tell you, that era of the Defenders, by the way, had some of the best Bill Sienkiewicz covers, Art, Art Adams covers. Um, uh, there was an, an, an artist named Frank Fosco, Carl Potts. I mean, Kevin Nolan. Sandy Plunkett, they made sure that that specific Defender squad, they they, they poured great covers onto that book. The, the, the guts of the book never quite took. So Jackson Geis is sitting there talking about how it's weird that, that a, you know three of the original X-Men are on the Defenders. 
So he continues and says, you know, I love the original X-Men. I followed them religiously. Uh, he says, uh, when Jim arrived back at his apartment from being away that weekend, Bob and I said, hey, Jim, this is what you ought to do. We're telling the editor-in-chief, you know, what he should do. Jackson Geist says, laughter. You should take the original X-Men and put them together in an all-new book. And you go back to the original premise of the first run of the X-Men, which was Professor Xavier said the purpose of the team and the school and everything was to seek out and find mutants and help them cope to eliminate mutant threats. So he says to basically be the bridge between mutant kind and mankind. And he says, uh, these guys are like the oldest mutants walking around the Marvel universe. They are well-trained and they have the most experience. They've been dealing with this kind of mutant scrutiny for years in comparison to the other mutants that were comprising the X-Men team. He says, let's take this experience and have them put it to great use. And at the time, Bob Layton and I were supposed to work on a brand new Hercules series. And he says, what, a third miniseries? Because Bob Layton had really revolutionized Hercules by giving him the humor that you kind of see, honestly, in She-Hulk and Deadpool. Bob Layton did it first. He took, he took Hercules, who was kind of a grousy, traditionally grousy, boastful guy, and made him funny. He made him really super funny and kind of uh, put him in really funny and humorous situations all across the galaxy. And it was a big success. Bob wrote it and drew, drew the first miniseries coming off his Iron Man success and then he blew up and uh and 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 this took flight with a second Hercules miniseries so here Jackson guys reveals that he and Bob are set to do a, a dedicated Hercules series based on the success that Bob's had Bob will write it and ink it not pencil and ink it which he was doing on the miniseries and Jackson would illustrate it and he says uh you know we weren't really thinking of the fact that we would do this new X-Men book. We were just pitching it to Jim because he says they were going to do the regular Hercules series. He said, we were just like, here's an idea, Jim, you know, do, what it, do with it whatever you want. Jim Shooter looked at us and said, so when do you want to start? So when do you want to start? So Bob Layton, who huge talent, writer on Iron Man, writer on Hercules, illustrator on both uh, A-list Super A-list inker, I'd say after the Terry Austins of the world, Bob was the most in demand of the really commercial line slick inkers. He inked John Bernie, George Perez. He inked John Romita Jr. He he inked Dave Cockerman covers. I mean, uh, he was also a very accomplished, you know, penciler and inker in his own right. Like many inkers, he he just you know was slower than the average guy, but boy, the finishes he could put on somebody, the polish was just fantastic. He said, uh, you know, and then I've told you how commercial and fan favorite status that, that Jackson Geis was. So Jim Shooter says, when do you want to start? We looked at each other and it was the first time it really dawned on us that, well, we could pull this off. We could do this. And the more we talked about it, the more excited that we got. And it went from there. We talked to Mike Carlin. Listen to my Hawk and Dove. It's called uh, Learning to Fly. And you'll hear about all of my wonderful interactions with Mr. Carlin. We talked to Mike Carlin, who was originally going to be our editor for the new Hercules regular series. He agreed to be the editor for X-Factor. 
As a matter of fact, he came up with the name. He went to lunch with us and he said, hey, let's call it X Factor. Okay, so there you go. He said, how do you think the interviewer, Dwight, says, how do you think your art is different with X Factor? And then he talks about how he had so many different influences on Swords of the swash, Swashbucklers with um, classic Howard Pyle, Howe Foster, N.C. Wyeth. A lot of fantasy illustrators here. Um, you know, not not traditional superhero guys. And he said, uh, he, he was pointing out that this would be more of a return to a traditional comic book style. And again, I've got to condense some of this in term in 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 uh, you know in lieu of the time that we have to share because again it gets a little verbose, especially because most of his answer is about what he was trying to do on his Swords of the Swashbucklers series. But he again says, "I'm going to throw it into gear. I'm going to do more of a superhero style." And he says, uh, he, "He wraps it up with what we did in Swashbuckler. I thought the elements were a nice blend of all the things that I remember from my own personal experience when I was 12 and stuff and 14, discovering this sort of fantasy material." the trips to the library to read Mysterious Island and books like Captain Kidd and Blackbeard and all the things that I like. That's what we carried off in that book to a degree. If I had stayed on Swashbucklers, I was hoping that we would continue in that direction. But now I'm leaving with issue four. He said, why did you decide to leave it? What was your decision to shift your commitment to X Factor? Um, I'm sure the answer was sales, but the answer here is, well, it was a large, it was a, my commitment to X-Factor became a large part of it. I found that suddenly I'm committed to this X-Factor book and I wasn't going to be able to give the Swords of the Swashbucklers as much time as I deserved. The book had become gradually, gradually more behind schedule. In an effort to get it out in time, uh, I felt like I was rushing the art. So he says, uh, do you and Bob Layton plan the stories out together? He goes, yes. This is really, truly collaborative. I've, 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 uh, the most collaborative I've worked since I've been in comic books, Jackson guy says, as far as the stories, as far as the stories go, no one sits down and works up the general direction of the plot. Bob and I tend to do as we get together and spend, uh, an intense week brainstorming the characters themselves, certain elements about characters and what makes them tick. We just start teasing these ideas back and forth. We don't sit down and say, Okay, then in issue five, we'll do this. It's a, it's little random things. I'll simply say something like, do you remember back in issue three, in, in, in X-Men number 63, what happened and everything that they that that um, that they never touched on in previous in, in, in subsequent stories? And Bob will go, That's always bugged me too. That's intriguing. And we'll take a closer look at it. Or we might simply just get together and argue about the type of clothes that the characters will wear. Anything and everything dealing with the characters, we just tossed it back and forth. Usually in great agreement, and I find that we both tend to think very closely on the same along the same lines as far as the characters are concerned. He says, and then after we're done for like a week, we sit down and we start figuring out the natural progression of the order that we want to put these events together. We have things that we've tossed back and forth and probably will not, you know, come together until the end of the second year. That doesn't mean that we're saving them in reserve in case something fails. It's simply that it will not work that early on. We have so many different ideas that we want to throw uh, together that we just can't lose them in the shuffle. It would be like extra padding. We haven't 
decided exactly like where issue thir- issue 19 falls in all this. It's just out there and sooner or later we're working to this point and that point and we find that we have far more ideas than we have room to do in each issue. It doesn't end with just the plotting because then there's the fact you know, that Bob Layton is an artist himself and he'll suggest ways to handle certain scenes. I'll do it if, it if he sees something that doesn't quite work right or an element that I've missed. He'll bring it back to me and mention it. If I agree, then we'll rework it. If I disagree, we'll talk it out. We decide which is the best way to go. X-Factor is the first book that I have felt was a 24-hour-a-day job as far as understanding the characters and all the things that we want to accomplish. It's not something to sit down and say that I have to turn out a number, X number of pages a day. I'm consistently finding little things in magazines, newspapers, articles, and stuff that will spark future storylines. I'll just call Bob up and mention it to him, and we'll start rambling. We'll start rambling about it, and who knows? Six issues down the line, it'll appear. The interviewer says, has Bob visited you down in Asheville? Yes, we do quite a bit of commuting back and forth. Right now, as far as dealing with the book, it's much more beyond the regular type. Also, both Mike Higgins, the assistant editor, and Mike Carlin, our main, our main editor, are wonderful about it in that they've constantly pitched ideas at us as well. They're terrific about finding the holes that we have in our concepts because we tend to get so close to it that sometimes there are absolute holes that we need to fill. There are things that go, and then there are things that don't really connect, and both mics are very good about it. Whoa, I know you need to rush to get this part out, but you missed this thing over here and you didn't quite pull it off. He says, what do you hope to establish with X Factor? He says, strangely enough, Paul Smith asked me the same thing this past week and I told him that what I would really like to do with X Factor, and remember what I'm telling you here, remember this, this part, what I'd really like to do with X Factor is I would like to accomplish what Jack Kirby did with his run on the Fantastic Four. At times, I wish I had set an easier goal. Laughter. It says laughter in parentheses. If I'd given my choice of characters to draw, if Jim had simply said, go do something, whatever you want, the original X-Men would probably have been it. So he wants to equal a run of what Stan and Jack did, which was 101 issues. 101 issues on Fantastic Four. I think I'm a solid storyteller, he says. I think I have quite a bit more to learn. As soon as you feel that you don't have anything more to learn, you're in big trouble, Jackson says. And then uh, the, 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 they talk about failings and art and what to learn. And, but at the end of the day, he says, uh, he asks him about what happened in regards to bringing Gene Gray back. And... Uh, because that was the big thing. Jean Grey was dead, you guys. She was deader than a doornail. Um, and uh, the big thing about X Factor is they brought Jean Grey back from the dead. I mean, she had absolutely died in the pages of X Men 137 and had not been, you know, revisited. So it's like, you know, they have to. Uh, they have to uh, address some of these things. And he says, uh, he says, you know, what's your major influence in regards to what you're doing with X-Men, with X-Factor? And he says, well, Jackson, the artist says, my major influence is not being influenced stylistically. I'm trying to draw from my memory more and more uh, than anything else. I've sort of revisited going back through and rereading all of these X-Men books. He said, have you done all your research? He goes, only when it's necessary for a costume or a particular event. 
My memory of those titles is so sharp as far as what I remember, as far as the original thing that I had when I was reading those books, and I'm afraid that if I went back and read them over again, there would be some sort of contradictions, and they wouldn't be as good as I remember because my values have changed from being 12 years old and now working in the comic book business. He says, are you intimidated at all by, by, by the fact, the interviewer says, are you intimidated at all by the fact that you're going to have the new X-Men and the new mutants running around? He says, no, 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 not really. I think there's plenty of room. I, I really don't think of this as part of this mutant takeover of the comic book world where every other title seems to be a mutant book. Dwight says, nonetheless, it does seem that it is just that. And he says, yes, yes. But I think basically what it boils down to is the mutant books under Chris Claremont are extremely well done. And that is why they're so popular. You get to you get a certain percentage of sales because, yes, it's a mutant book. And mutants are hot right now, but I think it goes back to basically the difference between a good comic and a bad comic. If you want your readers to keep coming back, then they'll simply have to enjoy it. I don't think they'll keep coming back simply because it's a book with mutants in it. He says, you're heading, you're hedging your bets pretty big by bringing back Jean Grey. And Jackson Guy says, yeah, well, strangely enough, that was not the original idea Bob had uh, when Bob and I had when we presented the series. That was brought to us and it was put simply, it was put in simply because it worked as such a good story. Dwight says, well, I was talking with Bob Layton, who you're working with on this book, and he said that he had come up with something completely different than what John Byrne came up in regards to returning Jim Gray. I mean, Gene Gray, Gene Gray. And Jackson guy says, yeah, we had the first five issues pretty much worked out already. We had it verbally plotted. Then John Byrne and Roger Stern approached Jim Shooter with their idea. And then we were called in because suddenly it was like, if there was a place that we were going to do this event, it was going to be in X Factor. But other than once, it, but other than once it was presented to us and working it into this storyline, we really had no part in bringing Jean Grey back. The interviewer says, "Surely there must have been a realization that this might be inter interpreted as a cheap shot. How did you guys figure out how to make something like this go so smoothly, and and actually have some meaning behind beyond? Hey guys, guess who we're bringing back from the dead?" Jackson guy says, "Well, I think it goes back to the fact that we both really love the characters." The book really is getting the same amount of attention and work from us one way or the other as are feeling it as, as we're feeling it out. I think the title probably would have worked just as well without Jean Grey and the fact that the popular character is back now doesn't mean she is going to be played up any more so than the other characters. X-Factor success or failure will depend on the quality of the work. I don't think that you'd be able to ride on the just the fact of the character's return on the surface. So... That sets the stage for what happened. How do you get the, the five original X-Men back together when Jean Grey has been dead, okay? Has been dead at this point for six years in the comic books, and they had honored that death. So here's where Kurt Busick writes in the X-Factor Collected Edition, and this is a bit long-winded, so I'm going to try and truncate this. He says, this is all my fault. Again, Kurt Busiek, author of Marvels, author of uh, Astro City, started out at Marvel, says, this is all my fault. If you haven't read these X-Factor stories yet, you might want to go and skip this, skip this introduction until you have. I'm going to talk about how the story came to be, and as such, I may end up spoiling surprises for new readers. That said, onward. To call these stories controversial when they first came out would be an understatement. It had been five years since the X-Men known as Phoenix Jean Grey, or so we thought, had sacrificed herself to save the universe from the incredible threat of Dark Phoenix. And here was Marvel telling readers that no, that wasn't quite Jean, and she'd been alive all this time. 
Some readers were pleased, of course, and glad to see Gene back. Others were horrified, feeling that to tamper with the story in which Phoenix died was to rob it of all its power and turn it into a travesty. Who came up with this rotten idea, they wanted to know. Well, that would be me, Kurt B. Success. And here's how. Back in 1980, while I was in college, some friends and I heard through the grapevine that Gene's death had been decreed and would hit in X-Men 137. We didn't have the internet back then, but news traveled fast, and we heard that not only Jim Shooter, editor-in-chief of Marvel back then, had demanded Gene die for her acts as Dark Phoenix, specifically killing the entire plant of the Dabari, but that he would not allow any creators to resurrect her under any circumstances unless someone found that she was not, in fact, guilty of Dark Phoenix's crimes. Well, me and my friends were aghast. We were all fans of the original X-Men and hated the idea of any original team member being killed off. But in addition, we were intrigued by the caveat that she couldn't come back unless she was innocent. We spent a fine evening talking comics, working out possible scenarios for Jean Grey's return. A return from death that we hadn't yet seen. My idea was that Phoenix hadn't really been Jean, but an incarnation of the Phoenix Force, something Chris Claremont had seemed to at least hint at when he made references to Phoenix being a separate entity from Jean Grey. The, the entity had used Jean as a template to give itself form. Dark Phoenix, to my mind, was the inevitable corruption as the resulting entity as it grew further and further apart from its source, and that would mean Jean was still alive, cocooned at the bottom of the Jamaica Bay. Now, mind you, this wasn't anything I intended to pitch to Marvel. It was just a creative exercise, a way for a few friends to have some fun with comics and vent our annoyance at a story that we didn't really like the sound of. I filed the story away in my mind, and that was it, or so I thought. Three years later, I'd broken into the business. I was writing Power Man and Iron Fist, my first regular writing assignment. At the time, I was attending one of my first comic book conventions as a pro. It was in Ithaca, New York, which meant I got to hang out with Roger Stern, a superb craftsman and all-around affable guy. Our chat turned to the X-Men, and at one point, Roger commented that he would love to see Jean Grey return, but there was no way of getting around Shooter's edict uh, on the matter. Sure there is, he said. Snot-nosed, young whippersnapper that I was. I'd outline the idea I'd come, out, come up with, and Roger loved it. Again, there was no thought of actually using it. It was just more comic book conversation, and it ended there. Or so, once again, I thought. It was two years later or so that I was working as the assistant editor on Marvel Age when Bob Layton breezed up to me in the Marvel bullpen and said, Hey, I hear the guy I have to thank for bringing Gene back. He said, Huh? Kurt Busiek writes, Huh? I responded, having no idea what he was talking about. It seems that in the intervening time I spoke to Roger, he had mentioned his this idea to John Byrne, and John loved it. And when word got out that Bob would be doing a new series called X-Factor, reuniting the four surviving original X-Men, John Byrne called Bob Layton and said, I know a way that you should have Gene back in the team. Bob ran the idea past Jim Shooter, and Jim Shooter okayed it. And Roger got the show got to show Gene being found in the Avengers book. Then John got to revive her in the pages of the connecting Fantastic Four crossover, and Bob then got to reunite the original X-Men in the pages of X-Factor, so all the pieces, you know, moved together. I was paid for my idea. I got a credit line in the Fantastic Four, even if my name was misspelled, and I got to edit the issue of Marvel Age that promoted the entire endeavor. Now you'll notice that I've cleverly taken all the credit for Gene's return. My idea! My idea! And ducked all the blame. It wasn't me who decided to do it. I didn't even know what was happening. He jokes in parentheses. But all I contributed in the final analysis was the idea, the explanation of how Gene could still be alive. And that wasn't a story. It was up to Roger with John Buscema, John with some 
uncredited revisions by Chris Claremont and Jackson Geis, the result of creative differences with the editor-in-chief that would soon see John depart the Fantastic Four. Bob Layton with Jackson Geis again to take that explanation and build an actual story around it, which they did. And that's what you're going to see in the pages that follow, a solid, dramatic, involving story that plays out a significant part in the ongoing history of the Marvel Universe and which can now serve as a companion volume to the Dark Phoenix saga, filling in latecomers who know, thanks to the volume, how Jean, di- how Jean died, but have never been sure how she came back. And that's it. That's the story of how the idea started, an idle conversation among a group of comic fans who wound up becoming a re- that wound up becoming a reality. To all of you out there who think this story ruined X-Men 137, my apologies. For my part, I think Phoenix's sacrifice holds up pretty well as a powerful and affecting story, however much however much it annoyed at the time of publication. And I'll admit, I do love the Marvel Universe a little better knowing that Jean Grey is back walking around it. But do me a favor, would you? If you ever come up with a great idea for how Uncle Ben or Bucky could come back to, to life, uh, keep that to yourself, okay? Thanks. This is 1999, which is hilarious that six years later, Bucky would come back to life as Winter Soldier. So that 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 is really funny that Kurt Busiek ends it that way. So Jackson guys, we've heard from the writer, the, the artist, and we've heard, heard from the guy that created the path with which they could form the original X-Men again. And that Fantastic Four issue of John Byrne, which was one of his last before he departed, is really inspired stuff. Terry Austin inked it. So they got the X-Men team back together, got got them back on board. And again, uh, the entire the concept is basically that when Gene died from the space shuttle uh, calamity in uh, X-Men 101, that the phoenix that arose from her was not indeed Jean Grey, and that Jean has been in this cocoon. Cocoon! She has been in a cocoon at the bottom of the ocean, was discovered. Uh, she came out, she came forward, and as such, it's it's been revealed again that the phoenix force was... Uh, was the corrupt the corrupting entity? It's in the panels. In uh, let's see, if you're ever wanting to go back and dig and look at this, Fantastic Four 286 special appearance by the Uncanny X-Men. Fantastic Four 30 pages, no ads. It starts here. X Factor like a phoenix, and Jean Grey is rising while the Fantastic Four in the foreground are all kind of looking away from her power. And in the um, in the pages of that issue of Fantastic Four, is it, did I say 286? Of Fantastic Four 286, we see that Jean emerged from the crash, transformed. She'd become infinitely powerful and called herself Phoenix. Something in that terrible power corrupted Jean. She seemingly became totally evil. She threatened to destroy the world, perhaps the universe itself. Then somehow she regained control of herself and in a dark lost cavern on the moon used an ancient weapon buried for a millennia in the lunar dust, used it to destroy herself and save all of us. Uh, and and it, 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 it goes back to the time that they said that Jean, the, the entity of Jean, was in a crystal as Beast is breaking all this down to Captain America. Reed Richards then says, um, if you truly were one of the original X-Men, Jean Grey, then you have faced greater terrors in the past. Whatever strength guided you, then summon it now. You must face whatever the crystal holds. Whatever is inside this crystal, whatever remnant of the Phoenix Force that is inside this crystal, it is necessary for her to um, to interact, to interface. And then we do the uh, the actual 
what, what I just showed you is what Marvel under what I just read to you, trying to give it visual form. The the talking about how she rose and something terrible was corrupting her and it became the Dark Phoenix. Now we see what exactly happened, and that you know, as that that Phoenix appeared, that the entity appeared, uh, you know, and separated from Jean. And here, whatever in this crystal is going to, um, you know, try and tempt her once again. She resists it. She says, I'm not Phoenix. I am Jean Grey. These memories, they're mine, but there's also, that there's something, there's something else here. Another image recorded alongside mine in the crystal. And then she faints. And then she says to everyone, uh, Reed Richards says, well, I can see Cap's point. The creature knew the risks of taking on a human form, both the good and the bad. And because the Phoenix Force took on the human form, that is why it was destroyed in X-Men 137. And uh, Captain America says, look, Gene, it was the power of the entity rebelling against the force of your will that tainted it. The Phoenix had duplicated you down to the last atom of your structure. So this is them telling the reader that the Phoenix that we saw, the, the Jean Grey that was walking around among the X-Men for so many years before she died was not Jean because they just found the real Jean in this cocoon down at the bottom of the ocean, her physical form, you know, which was the aftermath of the destruction, you know, in X-Men 101 on the space shuttle. Cap says it imitated the patterns of your brainwave so precisely that it even, that even a trained mind reader would not have recognized what it was. And Sue Storm says, your inner self could not be suppressed once the Phoenix had taken it on. You gave it your humanity, Gene. You gave it a soul. And Cap says, and in the last moments, as it hovered between light and darkness up there on the moon, that's what made the difference. The humanity, that the entity that had come out of Gene Grey, that, that, that Gene's overwhelming humanity, you know, was, was what gave the Dark Phoenix the ability to, to stop. And, and to use the weapon on the moon to eliminate herself. So this tied it up six years after, published six years after Jean has passed, and we then pivot to X-Factor. And we have Jean Grey coming back to introduce herself, drawn by Jackson Geis, inked by Bob Layton, Jackson Geis, and Joseph Rubenstein. It was a double-sized issue. It was a buck twenty-five. Um, let me tell you something. This was a must-buy at the comic store, the first uh, reuniting of the X-Men. And they would become, in essence, uh, semi-celebrities uh, this time. This, this is the X-Men team that would... Uh, this is the X-Men team that would announce themselves as basically the, uh, the bridge, again, as exactly like Jackson Guy said, as the, the helpers of struggling young mutants that we can help you overcome. We're public figures. We're the original X-Men. Um, we are out there actively looking for you. Here's a number to call. So it really took the X-Men concept a little little higher, a little, um, you know, it, it heightened it. The original Jackson Geis sketches of X-Factor, which found its way out to all of us, had the Beast uh, almost with a, a Wolverine til Timberwolf hair, hair, haircut. It would be as if the Blue Beast had turned completely flesh again, but his hair, his spiky Wolverine hair, was there. And I really liked all those initial designs. They did not, in fact, stick with that. But uh, Marvel promoted the crap out of it. They they promoted it in Marvel Age. They promoted it in uh, in, in these ma magazines, like the one I read from you, Comics Interview. 
Uh, these guys went out. They did the crazy press. But I'm telling you, it was not it, it was not smooth sailing. Um, Jackson Geis ended up leaving uh, relatively quickly. There were alternative versions drawn of each cover. The cover to number one was redrawn at the last minute. There's a different version of that. The cover to number two was originally drawn by 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 uh, John Byrne. It was then redrawn by Mike Zek, the published version. And the crazy thing is, this book got off to a very rocky start. With all of the bluster and the excitement about reuniting the X-Men and all of the backlog, all the work they did to undo the 137, uh, Jackson Geis did issue one. He did issue two. He did breakdowns on issue three. And then when it came to the, the subsequent issues, by issue four, um, Keith Pollard, who was uh, really a, a Bronze Age penciler. He stepped in as the fill-in artist. So Jackson Guy survived the first two issues. Then um, in, issue, uh, in issue five, uh, Jackson Geis returns after the Keith Pollard issue. And again, they're, they're, they're you know, certainly doing their, their best to try and elevate X-Factor and make it a rival. But I'm telling you, the villains, the concepts... The, the conflicts that followed after the first issue just weren't linking up and they weren't taking fandom by storm. And it was, um, quite frankly, it was glitching. They even gave them an annual. Like, like they got an annual out the gate in between issues five and six. You got a an annual, X-Factor annual number one that Bob Layton went ahead and penciled and inked. So then by the time that we land safely and get back to X-Factor and we're on X-Factor issue five, uh, Jackson Geis has returned. It is a really nice, uh, what appears to be final effort because in X-Factor 6, X-Factor 6, the first appearance of Apocalypse is uh, Jackson's farewell. Uh, X-Factor 6 and 7, then Terry Shoemaker, Mark Silvestri. Uh, we, we suddenly get new directions. Um, and Jackson uh, is, is, uh, has been removed. And, and uh, it's a shame until, I think, recognizing that they had some fixing to do. Because prior to Jackson having his fill-in issues and then eventually leaving, a new writer emerges. Louise Simonson comes on board and she starts writing the book as Bob Layton has exited the book. And her, uh, her initial credits come on the origin you know, the, the, the origin issue of Apocalypse. X-Factor 6 and now Apocalypse. And inside the story, Apocalypse Now. But eventually, again, with Jackson Geis uh, initially only doing pencils for five issues, breakdowns for one, he leaves. The, the Mark Silvestri fill-in issue is fantastic. The Terry Schumacher issue is very, very nice. It's, it's very enjoyable. Terry was a uh, an artist that had started over at DC Comics and the Legion of Superheroes jumps over, steps in, starts drawing X-Factor. The bottom line, this core concept, and you guys have known that I have talked about the Temple Touchers and the Armcasters. That that, that that is the extent of the X-Factor team. It needed a jolt, and it got it. Walt Simonson pivots away, Louise Simonson's husband, pivots away from his responsibilities on Thor and goes directly into X-Factor. And let me tell you, it is, I think, work that is on par all across the board as good, if not better, than the stuff that he does on Thor. It is wildly overlooked, wildly under-heralded because the Thor stuff just 
is the stuff that comes to our mind. But if you go back and you look at the Inferno issues, you look, in, you, you look at all the different crossovers, because what they started to do, and Marvel wisely decided, X-Factor cannot stand on its own two feet. It needs to meet with the other X-Men books. It needs to be a part of all of our different, um, you know, whether it's Mutant Massacre or, or Inferno or all of the different um, Follow the Mutants. They needed to incorporate X, the X-Factor team and, uh, and, and, and sew, sew it in tighter continuity-wise. Because look, the original X-Men continued to be a tough sell. When he says, how do you feel about doing, the interviewer asked him, how do you feel about you know, doing this with these other mutant books around? What he really should have said is, how do you feel about doing X-Factor without Wolverine and Storm, the fan favorites that have put the X-Men on top? He tried to pivot and say, well, it's the talent. Except at that point, Wolverine had become such a popular character. He was you know, appearing in Alpha Flight. He was appearing in you know, Punisher War Journal. I would co-opt him for the New Mutants within my first six, seven issues. I mean, Wolverine... The character had so much intrigue that just including him meant an immediate bump, and X Factor didn't have him. And again, they 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 uh, shied away from making him from making Beast visually look more like a, a a combination of Wolverine and the original Beast, and just stuck with the blue incarnation of the Beast. But look, when Walt Simonson comes on, it's a whole different ball game. The energy, the layouts. So this really is about creators. I mean, the creators came on to because they needed top-of-the-line creators because the characters weren't enough and the storylines weren't getting there. But Louise coming on was a jolt. And then Walt and Louise together co-writing, co-plotting, and Walt doing his incredible illustration. Again, those Inferno issues. I believe the X-Factor chapters of the Inferno crossovers are the best chapters in the Inferno crossover. Walt uh, rose to the occasion and said, I'm going to shine. I'm going to go up against this young hotshot, Mark Silvestri. I'm going to show him how awesome I am. I'm going to show him how capable I am. I'm going to draw the entire, the entire, you know, uh, cast of the New Mutants, X-Factor, X-Men together in this crossover in my issues. I'm going to show you how great this stuff is supposed to look. Walt stepped it up. X-Factor turned a page, but he, here's how it goes. A couple of guys in an apartment staying in the edit, with the editor-in-chief while he's away. And their romantic notion of the original X-Men and seeing them back together set them on a course to do this. It was clumsy. It stumbled. It undid a classic, classic death. And and Kurt Busiek's right. It was controversial. It was like, wait, what do you mean? I remember going, "Ah, I don't love this. I don't love this because as I've told you, Jean Grey was the first time I ever cried when a character died. It really shocked all of fandom. But X-Factor, to Kurt Busiek's credit, he found a great out, this entire, like, d- basically a demon, a-, a cosmic demon, you know, had possessed Jean and then emitted out of her. The Phoenix Force passed through her, became corrupt, posed as her, and ultimately with its humanity intact. I mean, that Fantastic Four issue where they bring back Jean Grey, and I read to you some of the exposition of Captain America, Reed Richards, Sue Storm. I mean, they're giant word balloons as they are explaining how they are undoing to us fans. And it was a brilliant execution to have John Byrne and have it in the Fantastic Four because John Byrne illustrated, co-plotted the death of Phoenix, the Jean Grey. He was tasked with that. That that classic was part of him. So the way that they kind of handled the bringing back of Jean Grey so that we got to the original X-Men was very, um, very interesting. But again, Jackson Geis uh, did five issues of Pencils, one issues of breakdowns and then was gone and 
eventually wound up over at DC Comics drawing The Flash. And uh, in, in, in later years, uh, they had wooed him over and he was part of a brand new fl- Flash launch that I think everybody liked. He then really became a staple of DC Comics. He left the company. I guess, you know, whatever happened drove him out of Marvel completely. And again, having met him on the convention circuit, he was a really sweet guy, really dug him, really enjoyed um, all my interactions that I've ever had with him, both um, as a fan, as I did, and then briefly professionally. But X-Factor has a um, checkered kind of launch. It was almost a failure to launch, but they shifted gears just in time. Louis Simonson came on, Apocalypse came in, the, 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 then they would completely change and pivot. Walt had been doing Thor for four years, so now he's going on an X-Men book. He had done villains of X-Men before, and, and they were really well received because Walt is so ridiculously talented. And then him joining with Louise to resurrect X-Force and to, you know, kick it into high gear. X-Force's sales went up, its relativity went up, its excitement went up. The fans looked at it differently. It was more surefire. It's just, again, the, 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 the villains and the consequences of the original, like, hey, we're your celebrity mutants. Call us. We'll help you. Um, and then kind of battling the mutant of the week. Uh, they tried to put together a brand new kind of Brotherhood of Evil called the Alliance of Evil based on the original characters that were um, appearing in the pages of the X-Factor. And yes, you can hear me flipping through the pages of the comics right now. But it's like um, Frenzy was a character that they battled. And, and, and in the second issue, um, you know, they, they battled a character. Again, you know, Tower, his name was Tower. The, 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 the original cover to X-Factor was redrawn at the last minute. The cover to issue two was drawn by John Byrne, and then it was redrawn by Mike Zek. Jim Shooter knew. He knew that he had to tweak this. He had to, um, you know, he was making last-minute decisions because he just knew that whatever the concept that started in his apartment, it wasn't hitting its mark. And they shifted, and, and, and again, having a spinoff of the X-Men, which was such a big deal, having the first book with X in the title, they had to get it to work. And again, the jury will uh, find that it did by bringing the Simonsons together. It electrified the book and the book went on to tremendous success and never better than when it was coming alongside uh, the X-Men book. Later on, you'd get Wills Portacio on X-Factor. You'd get Larry Stroman. You'd get Joe Casada. So it became a hugely important book in regards to breaking um, new and relevant ta- talent and uh, introducing more and more incredible X-Men characters following the the Simonsons' eventual departure when they went to DC to do a, a bunch of Superman stuff. So that is the history of X-Factor told to you by the man who conceived of the concept and the penciler who, you know, kind of... Uh, the man who conceived of the concept of bringing back Jean Grey, comma, Kurt Busiek, and then one of the originators of the idea in the first place Jackson Geis alongside Bob Layton, two really hot creators of the time who said, why don't we bring the original X-Men back? And apparently Mike Carlin, who uh, we'll, re- we'll, we'll close with him in his brief. He gave a one because it even says that his conversation with the interviewer was brief because he wanted to follow up uh, with Mike Carlin. It's not even a page. It's half a page. Dwight Zimmerman called Mike Carlin and said, uh, you know, tell us about X-Factor. And Mike Carlin says, well, basically, I don't listen to a lot of what the fan press says before a book comes out. I'm more interested in, in the reactions after the book hits. Most of the rumors, as you know, come from people that really aren't in touch with what's happening here. And they are, um, you know, most, most of what you've heard prior to X-Factor coming out is wrong, he says. What I like about what I'm hearing and 
what, 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 what I know from what most people are saying they're angry about, I think they're really looking forward to it. I'm glad that because this is something that I've wanted to do for a really long time, because I love the X-Men. It was my favorite Marvel comic. Daredevil was a close second. I've wanted to get the original X-Men back together for centuries. Bob Layton, Bob Layton was a huge fan of the original X-Men. Again, this is the editor, Mike Carlin, my editor on Hawk and Dove in 1985, telling this interviewer, speaking, as, as you can see, kind of nervously from a defensive stance, whatever was asked, because it doesn't have the, it doesn't have the question. The, the interviewer says, I wanted to get in touch with Mike Carlin, so I was able to reach him while he was... Um, I was, I was able to reach him in New York briefly by phone. So this is all that Mike says, and he comes out of the gate kind of like, I know people don't like this. I, I, you know, They're hearing that we're bringing back Gene Gray, but they don't know how. This, this is the underlining kind of reading between the tea leaves of what he's saying and why he's being so defensive. Like a lot of what you hear is wrong. The rumors are wrong. Uh, people are angry about stuff. They don't know what they're angry about. Um, they should be happy. We have, we're bringing the X-Men back. We have people who are passionate, who are doing it. Bob Layton was a fan of the original X-Men, you know, uh, he likes the characters. He's going to do them great justice. He says, I think X-Factor's greatest asset is that we have a history of these X-Men characters to call adventures from. The personalities are already established. They were very well-rounded characters before we got a hold of them, yet we've added a whole new aspect with their regrouping, and it's going to keep it fresh. It will have uh, tons of personality as well. Every single one of them is going to have problems, just like real life. They might not have problems from day one, but in the, as the stories unfold, they're going to have numerous problems among them. <laughs> I'm telling you, this is, this as far as me, Rob Liefeld, as far as interviews go, this is a terrible interview. He says, he compares it to the show Dynasty. It's like the show Dynasty. One week, they'll focus on two characters and the other, they'll focus on another. And the week after that, they'll focus on some other characters. But they're all major stars of the show. There are There's not going to be a lot of extraneous characters like in ROM where there's so many millions of space knights. But we definitely are going to bring it back with an old-school Marvel kind of feel. A lot of big panels, lots of exciting novel locations. It's going to feel like James Bond. Not to say that it's a spy comic, it's just going to have an international feel for adventure. The X-Men and the New Mutants are, a secret, are secret organizations. One of them is actually a school, and the other one is just like, well, it's like the graduate school. And their work is very, very secret. S-Factor is going to be X-Factor is going to be covert in their own way, yet they're going to be what I'd call hiding in plain sight. They're going to be a very, very public organization. They're going to be advertised on television as a public service for, you know, mutant haters across the land. But I think everyone's going to be pleasantly surprised by X-Factor. Again, the premise of the book was call us with a mutant problem if you have mutants and we'll show up as the X-Men and, and, and take them under our wings and save them and then teach them how to to heal. So it's like their covert message is, if you have a mutant that you want to report, call X-Factor and we'll deal with it. But they would deal with it with love and compassion and protection. So they would use your bias against the mutants. This is me not talking, talking now. The, the, the interview ended when he said, uh, everyone's going to be pleasantly surprised by X-Factor. After he says, they're going to be advertised on television as a service, you know, mutant haters across the land. Everyone will be pleasantly surprised by X-Factor. Again, now me talking, that was the basis. Call us. We're X-Factor. We exist to get rid of your mutant problems. But when you identify them, we'd show up and go, we're so sorry you have to deal with these people who are biased against you, whatever that, whoever that mutant might be, and then take them under their wing and try and give them instruction and, and, and protection. So again, radically changed by the time Louise and Walt Simonson come on. They change it. They save it. 
Weird. X Factor was weird. It launched with a lot of fanfare, but it got it was really shaky, really fast. But again, we've covered that it got solidified. Guys, the expansion of the X-Men uh began right here. The New Mutants was just the taster, but X Factor, I gotta tell you, it was a great name. X Factor. X Factor. I loved it. I bought every issue. I stuck with it. I was so excited when the Simonsons came because I think I was about to I was about to drop it. But it but having the X in the title is powerful. It was powerful. It's it's powerful today. It's powerful back then. It's uh it's it's maintained kind of its credibility across the decades now. So that is your history of how the expansion of the X-Men universe uh came about and really there was no looking but back and I don't think without X-Factor you'd ever ever get to see an X-Force. So I I am in a bit of a debt to this entire concept. Because without it, I don't think I could have stuck the landing that I did in further expanding it with Cable and Company as as X-Force. Documenting the history of comic books, especially when it comes to the X-Men, you know, I, I try and, and, and get the words of the creators as they were saying it. And with the, you know, Jackson Geis interview, I wanted you to hear like, you know, this concept was a couple of guys, himself and Bob Layton talking as we've covered, you know, throughout this entire episode, which then becomes a uh, Eureka, you know, light bulb moment for Jim Shooter, who then starts to put it together, but they need the Jean Grey, you know, equation. And bottom line, the reason I'm, I'm revisiting that, you know, what we've just discussed is sometimes reading these interviews can, it can be monotonous, but it is part of the things that I know that you guys have told me that you appreciate. So it's a little bit of homework, um, reading interviews, uh, editorializing them, skipping sections so that we have more time for other stuff like then the Kurt Busick, you know, hey, I came up with this entire idea, which again, if you're hearing it for the first time, I'm so glad that you are. It's 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 important that you understand because in all honesty, as clunky and as uh, uncertain footing that the 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 X Factor concept had in, 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 in trying to get off the ground, it is the reason that Scott Gene, Angel, Beast, and Iceman kind of came back into the consciousness as powerful as they did. Because obviously, you know, Scott then becomes even more important when Jim Jim rejoins or Jim joins the X-Men with Claremont and they really try and return to the heyday of the John Byrne, Terry Austin, you know, those classics that everyone continues to adore and kind of hold above everything. I mean, that that, that is the fuel. You know, I, I would say that Miller's Daredevil, Simonson's Thor... Uh, John Byrne and Terry Austin on X-Men. That is the fuel. Miller also on Batman. Get get Jim Starlin in there with with his Warlock work and his Captain Marvel. And that was the fuel that surged not only the Bronze Age, but my age. Again, so it's important, though, to to realize again, you know, and, and to be able to go, hey, man, these characters shouldn't be secondary characters in the Defenders. They should be starring in their own vehicle. So, yeah, this was a really, uh, you know, studious episode, but you got it straight from the mouse of the creators who gave you this, this work. And, again, and, and I'm not kidding you. You can Google the X4, the X-Factor number one cover, the original, the X-Factor number two, the original. I mean, from the outset, this, this book was on shaky ground, but they stuck with it. And what do they do? They had the patience that I say, you know, other publishers sometimes don't. They had the patience to get X Factor right, to not pull the plug, to stay the course, and to uh, to then 
elevate it and make it into something else. You guys, we went extra long today, 90 minutes. So I am going to forego your usual generous reviews that you leave for me. And we're going to just exit by me telling you, of course, that I am on Twitter, on Instagram, at Robert Liefeld for Twitter. The full long name, at Robert Liefeld for Twitter. Blue check tells you it's really me. On Instagram, I'm at Rob Liefeld. Another blue check, Rob Liefeld on Instagram. This podcast has a Facebook page. Rob Observations with Rob Liefeld is a dedicated Facebook page. Find it, like it, leave a message. I'll read it. I'll find you. I have a Facebook group. It's called Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group. Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group. I am the administrator. Another gentleman named Terry Sala, S-A-L-A, is the administrator. We will both be the ones that either click you in, approve you. Uh, that's how you know it's us. Okay, there's other Liefeld groups. That's the legit one. And you should go by, join it, uh, be part of that community. It's growing, and it's such a blast to be able to interact with all you guys, whether it's on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, your mentions, your comments. I'm always interacting. I, I, I try and be as interactive as I possibly can be. I love, I mean, if I'm you know about to sign off for the night or taking a break in the middle of the day and I can get on uh, Twitter or Instagram or Facebook and, and you know talk to you guys, it's the best. It's, it's so rewarding. You guys know at the end of this, every show I tell you to take care of yourself, your mental health, your emotional health, your physical health, your spiritual health. Account for all of them by resting. Eat some fun stuff. Eat good food. Also, have those times like cheat meals. Have a brownie. Have a cupcake. Have a cookie. Have ice cream, gelato, chips, a burger, a taco, an enchilada. Come on. Uh, balance it all out. Fun has to be part of what you do, and that means chill out, watch great shows, fun movies, break out your practical media, get those old DVDs with all the extra bonus features that aren't available on all these streaming applications and just dive in. Just have the best time and relax. And by relaxing and enjoying yourself, you will be, you know, feeding that, 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 that those different portions of yourself that need to be fed, that round you out, that give you kind of um, inspiration, strength, motivation, all of the above. So guys, I'm rooting for you. Always, always rooting for you guys. Swing back Around the cul-de-sac, I'll be here, and we most certainly, absolutely, will talk again real soon.